0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast dedicated to helping you discover the Scriptures in a fresh way, invest your mind and heart into your personal study, and connect to God in your everyday life. I am your sole host this week, Zach Horton. Krista and the kids are away. And this is uh, section 76. And I'm really excited for this study. It's going to be a bit longer this episode uh, than the mini episodes we've been doing during the summer for two reasons. One, uh, because Kristen and the kids are gone, uh, aside from a couple of phone conversations with them, I have not had a whole lot of uh, use for my voice. And our house is usually filled with lots of talking, uh, lots of noise. And so I'm feeling really quiet and uh, I would like to have a little bit more noise. So forgive me if I use the opportunity to talk a bit more. But the bigger reason is because section 76 is such a significant section, both for church history. It revealed things uh, that not only helped church members understand the afterlife better, but it also uh, positioned the church doctrinally in a place that made it diverge pretty sharply from some mainstream Christian churches It caused quite a stir in the community and in the community of the church, uh, and served as um, kind of a crux of church history. So with all of that, and because of what it means for us, we decided we couldn't just do a mini episode on this one. So with all of that, I want to start by just sharing something I've gleaned over the years. Um... As I have uh, worked with teenagers over the past couple of years, just about every year I administer to them what I call a salvation confidence survey. And all it is, is I'll pass around a blank, uh, little blank pieces of paper to students and ask them, based on their current understanding of the plan of salvation, which kingdom they think they are going to celestial, terrestrial, or telestial. I assure them it's completely anonymous, and then I gather up all of the papers, I tally them up and present to them in a pie chart the statistics. And uh, there's a little bit of difference each year, of course, because different student groups are different, but there are some things that are similar year to year. For example, and probably most significantly, uh, celestial kingdom almost always ends up as the lowest chosen option, meaning fewer students feel confident that they will make it to the celestial kingdom than students that feel they'll go to the terrestrial or the telestial kingdom. And those two will usually swap places. Either terrestrial will be first or telestial will be first. Now, some of that, I think, uh, could be based on just um, a somewhat rudimentary understanding of the kingdom of glory and what they mean. I mean, I didn't even know how to keep terrestrial and celestial separate until into adulthood when someone taught me sea turtle, celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Um, so that could be some of it. But as I've talked to students about it, I sense that there's a bigger reason, and that is most of them just don't feel confident that they will that they are good enough to make it to the celestial kingdom and i can resonate or i can understand that because i remember sitting in a seminary class and looking at the sun the moon and the stars on the wall and i remember thinking okay the celestial kingdom that's where the prophet goes so for ranking people obviously prophets and apostles they go to the celestial kingdom which must mean that the terrestrial kingdom is the next tier down and so that's maybe what the the seminary council president um you know young men's leaders and uh and then i remember thinking so that must mean that i am celestial kingdom especially with all of my doubts and sins as a teenager i i just didn't even feel close to worthy when i compared myself to other people now of course I've grown and developed and and understand that it's not a comparison with other people, but a comparison with self. But I still remember the pain that that caused. Um, this study in Section 76 can fix that. Now, as I've been talking, maybe you've taken the chance to just assess yourself. If you were given that kind of a survey, where would you put yourself? Where would you say you will... "Quote unquote," end up in the kingdoms of glory, based on what you understand about them. Um, I think section 76 can address, if not outright fix, some of the stress, strain, worry that we have about final judgment, kingdoms of, of glory, and where we fit in the overall plan of salvation. So... To start us off, uh, I want to discover something in section 76. In fact, I want to discover three things that I think changes the way that we study section 76. Now, because it's a famous section, it's one that we've probably read multiple times, and had multiple lessons on, or at least read bits and pieces of it which means when you think section 76, you probably jump to the middle verses where it talks about the celestial kingdom, the terrestrial kingdom, and the telestial kingdom, and it gives the specific uh, descriptions of and blessings attendant to those different kingdoms. Um, However, I don't think that's the primary purpose of this vision. Joseph Smith famously taught that there are, quote, three things necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. First, the idea that he actually exists. Second, a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. Third, an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to to his will. For without an acquaintance with these three important facts, the faith of even rational being must be imperfect and unproductive. But with this understanding it can become perfect and fruitful, abounding in righteousness unto the praise and glory of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So long quote short, we need three things in order to exercise faith to salvation. First, we gotta know that God lives, that he exists. Second, we need to have a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. And then third, know that the path that we're pursuing is in line with what he would direct us to do. Well, if that's true, which I think that it is, I think section 76 helps us to achieve salvation and exaltation because it more clearly clarifies not just our relationship to God, but his character, his perfection and his attributes. So the first thing I want to discover in section 76 is what it teaches us about the character, perfection, and attributes of Jesus Christ. In fact, this section, even though it has celestial, terrestrial, and telestial discussion in it, I think it's primarily a section about Jesus Christ and his conquest over sin and death. The first forty-nine verses of the section are all about the Savior. We have that great testimony of Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, who are the ones receiving this vision. If you've read any of the backstory, you know that they um, are—they're in a room translating the New Testament. There's a couple of other elders there with them. And as they're translating the New Testament, this vision kind of unfolds. And I think it's Philo Dibble that uh, recounts that Joseph would say, what do I see? And then he described what he sees. And Sidney would say, I see the same. And then Sidney would say, what do I see? And describes what he sees. And Joseph would say, I see the same. And then uh, sometime either during the vision or after the vision, they they write down uh, this vision that they'd received. Uh, And it gets uh, disseminated to church members and becomes uh, pretty widely published. And so um, with all of that happening, the first 49 verses are about the Savior. And the testimony that Joseph and Sidney give is powerful. Verse 23, we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. So that's the focus of the beginning. The whole first 49 verses of the Revelation is about him. And so a fun question for us as we study, and I'll give one answer to this, but you'll come up with so many more in your study, is from section 76, what do you learn about the character, perfections, and attributes of Christ? What kind of a person is he? Now, one thing that I found that I think is helpful in understanding him and helpful in understanding our path towards salvation is this. I noticed this time through how emotional the Lord is. Uh, Listen to verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Uh, And then just a couple of verses later, verse 7: To them I will reveal all my mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom, from days of old and for ages to come will I make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning things pertaining to my kingdom. Those words, delight and pleasure, convey to me an emotive Lord. Um, A little bit later on, it'll even describe the converse emotion. Verse 26, when it's talking about Satan falling from heaven, uh, it says the heavens wept over him. In other words, the person that is in charge of mediating this plan of salvation, assuring our salvation and guiding us there, is emotionally connected to us and our salvation. And I think we probably have... Often too sterile a view of the Lord. Um, we view sections like this that are um, that seem to be organizing certain things coming from a God who wants to just organize His kingdom in a certain way and you know, always putting these people here and these people here and these people here. But that just doesn't square with what we read about the Lord in these beginning verses. This is these are people that He cares about. He's not He's not uh, He's not organizing a company. He's saving a family. And so section 76 is the story of Christ saving his family. It's an emotional affair. As an example, uh, verses 40 and 41. And this is the gospel, the glad tidings, which the voice out of the heavens bore record unto us, that he came into the world, even Jesus to be crucified for the world and to bear the sins of the world and to sanctify the world and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. So that's the first thing I think that's important to discover about section 76 is it's not just a handbook for who goes where. It's a story about Christ's loving conquering uh, of death and sin Uh, towards the end of the Revelation Verses 107-108, He shall deliver up the kingdom and present it to the Father spotless, saying, I have overcome and have trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. Then shall he be crowned with the crown of his glory to sit on the throne of his power to reign forever and ever. Again, a story of his conquest on our behalf. The second thing I think that's important to discover about this section is exactly who it is or how many people it is that Christ saves. And this, I think, is one of the most powerful things of section 76 and contextually, historically, one of the most controversial. I'll read a couple of verses and you'll notice really quickly the answer to the question of who does Jesus save or how many does he save? Um, We have this interlude after Joseph and Sidney see the Lord and describe their witness of him. Then there's this really sharp contrast where they see uh, Lucifer falling from heaven and the sons of perdition, those that follow him into outer darkness. And this has some utility to us as well. Of course, there's always uh, people and students, teenagers that I've worked with that uh, on their confidence survey, they're going to put outer darkness And we always spend at least a little bit of time here clarifying exactly what a son of perdition or what outer darkness is. There's three qualifications, if you will, here, all three of which most of us cannot meet. It's not even that we wouldn't. It's that we can't. Um, First, verse 25, Lucifer was one who rebelled against Christ. I hear it said all the time that there was a plan in heaven. Heavenly Father asked for a plan. Jesus came forward with a plan. Lucifer came forward with a plan. God chose Jesus' plan. Lucifer got angry and so he started a war and left heaven. It's not how it happened at all. The plan was ordained from the beginning and the plan centered on Jesus Christ. You go and read Moses 4 and that's what the plan is. Lucifer rebelled against the plan. He wasn't posing an alternative. He was rebelling against Jesus Christ. He wanted to, as it says in verse 28, take the kingdom of our God and his Christ. But he wanted to have that kingdom without going through his brother, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that's needed to go out of darkness is a complete rebellion against Christ. The second thing is a choice. In verse 31, it says they suffered themselves to be overcome. And verse 35, after having received a convincing witness of the Holy Ghost, which uh, that's not just the warm feelings of the Holy Ghost. That is the sure testimony that comes from the Holy Spirit of promise. They have to have had that and then choose, even though they have that confirming witness, they have to choose to rebel. And then the final one in verse 33, they are vessels of wrath, uh, doomed to suffer the wrath of God. And then um, verse 34, concerning whom I have said there is no forgiveness in this world nor in the world to come. Uh, They choose to do all of this. They're not forced into rebellion. And so there's this interlude about the sons of perdition. Uh, about this outer darkness that they go to. And it's kind of confusing because we have this grand opening to the vision where we see the Lord and his glory and hear this beautiful testimony. And then really quickly, we're dragged into this vision of outer darkness and the sons of perdition. And I've often wondered why. And I think at least one answer is to set up the power of these couple of verses that I want to read. So, sorry for the long preface, but... Who does Jesus Christ save? Well, listen to this. Verse 37. Starting in verse 36. Talking about the sons of perdition. These are they who shall go away into the lake of fire and brimstone with the devil and his angels. And the only ones on whom the second death shall have any power. Second death is spiritual death. Separation from God. Then verse 39. For all the rest... Shall be brought forth by the resurrection of the dead through the triumph and the glory of the Lamb who was slain, who was in the bosom of the Father before the world was made. Verse 42 That through him all might be saved, whom the Father hath put into his power and made by him. Verse 43. Uh, who glorifies the Father and saves all the works of his hands, except those sons of perdition who deny the Son after the Father has revealed him. Verse 44, wherefore, he saves all except them. Um, Who does Christ save? Emphatically, the answer from section 76 is he saves all. And I don't know if we believe that, if we, if we understand that, um, we don't talk about it nearly enough. We talk about our agency as if it trumps God's agency. And while it is true that we can choose to not live a celestial life, we can choose not uh, to dwell with the Father and the Son in, in the celestial kingdom, It's also true that our Father and our Savior are using their agency, and it is their pleasure and their goodwill, to save us. Everything Jesus Christ went through was to save all. And so, I think this is one of the most powerful things we can discover about section 76, is that this emotional Lord, who cares so much about everything, did what he did, so that he could save all of the works of his hands. Um, now, this is powerful. It's powerful us. it was also powerful contextually. Um, there was a pretty big uproar and backlash against section 76. And one of the biggest things that was hard for early church members or community members to believe was this teaching that Heaven was so much bigger and so much broader than had previously been taught. Um, The prevailing thought of the day was a very small heaven and a very strict heaven and then a very large hell. And righteousness was often motivated out of fear of that hell rather than out of uh, a love for God or his love for us. Um, Joseph probably was influenced, at least in his understanding, by a small group of growing Christians who just seemed, just couldn't see that that squared with what they understood in the scriptures. Um, predominantly among them was his own father. Joseph Sr. Uh, had leanings towards what was called universalism, which was that God's love was so much more expansive and that he didn't intend just to save only a few of his children and then consign the rest of them to damnation, but rather that he wanted to save everyone. That that's what the gospel is, is that everyone can be saved. And so as Joseph wrestles with this, section 76 confirms God's true character and his desire to save all. Now, with that, the third thing that I think is powerful to discover is that because of those truths, because of the Lord's emotional care for his family and because of his work to save all of us, we don't have to wait until judgment to find out or even live a celestial life. It's tricky reading section 76 because it is describing future our future position in the kingdoms of glory. But if you read carefully, it's describing it in terms of present actions, right? The celestial kingdom is one uh, belonging to those who, verse 52, keep the commandments that they might be washed and cleansed from their sins and who overcome by faith. That's talking about present actions, things that we can do now. Um, And so I think... (laughs) Part of the, the reason why we get so uneasy about final judgment is because we feel like this is going to be some kind of, um, I don't know, celestial ACT score test where we take it and our scores are sent to us later and we're going to be either surprised or dismayed. Um, but I think one of the points of section 76 is the Lord laying out exactly the way that the, the kingdoms of glory work so that we can live, or strive to live, uh, a celestial life now, and so that we can know that we're on that track. Remember that third uh, point that Joseph Smith said is needed for salvation is knowledge that the path we are currently pursuing is in line with God's will. Uh, Now, of course, we're not perfectly celestial yet, um but i think we don't have to wait to find out if we're going to the celestial kingdom because if we're if we believe in christ and are seeking to overcome by faith uh this world that we live in then we are on the path for the celestial kingdom um on that note i i read this just recently and it it touched me as far as an example of living a celestial life now or seeing uh, salvation and exaltation in our current life, not just waiting for it until later on. Um, There was a uh, writer, politician, government worker um, years ago named Louis Holla. Who worked for the government in 1945 right around the time when they were uh embroiled in wrapping up the end of world war ii and so uh as he described it he lived in washington dc and the government was kind of uh, a beehive of just activity and uh, as he describes it he said with all of that activity that was going on um, he would often go outside of the government buildings to just see the nature that surrounded the area. And so I really like what he wrote here, especially the last line. He says this, Though they ransack the nation archives, historians to come will find no records of certain remarkable episodes and developments that took place in Washington during the first half of 1945. The government has no department that takes cognizance of life itself. It posts no watchers out of doors to sniff the wind and inform those within of eternity. That is volunteer work, good occupation for a man. Uh, He says, this is me paraphrasing now, that a lot of times we get wrapped up in focusing on, he mentions, for example, the price of certain commodities on the stock market, but we don't focus on the budding of a flower, which has been happening for thousands of years and is much more connected to eternity than the stock market. And then he ends this preface to his book by saying this, and this is the quote I love. To snatch the passing moment and examine it for signs of eternity is the noblest of occupations. It is Olympian. I love that point, and I love that we don't have to wait until final judgment to live a celestial life and to enjoy celestial-like blessings. Now, of course, the kingdoms are more incredible than we can even imagine, um, but so is living a life of love and charity and kindness in a community of other people who live lives of love and charity and kindness. Now, with all of that... Um, to invest our minds and hearts into our study, here's the question I might pose to you. How would you live your life differently if you believed that Christ had really saved you and that you could enjoy his kingdom now? What would change if instead of trying and scrambling to work for something in the future. You lived life as uh, if Christ had already done the work of saving you and you are trying to practice living the celestial life. What would life look like? What kind of stresses would disappear or uh, dissipate? Uh, And what kind of joys and peace might you feel? Now, to connect... This study to our everyday life, here's the challenge that I give to all of us. I think with this study this week, we can change the way we talk about salvation. Um, I had a uh, leader of mine uh, years ago, an incredible teacher, that said something I'll never forget. He said, we often live our life as if we're at the bottom of a mountain trying to climb to the peak. That mentality ignores all of the scriptures that talk about us as sons and daughters of a divine and heavenly king and queen. And so his clarification was, he says, we are not trying to get to the top of the mountain. We were born on top of the mountain. We are, as Paul says, heirs of eternal life, co-heirs with Christ, and in line to receive all of the blessings that the Father is ready to give us. Well, what would life look like if we lived like we were born on top of the mountain rather than if we're trying to scramble up the mountain? Can we change that for ourselves and can we change it for other people? In our lessons, as we talk with our families, can we talk and teach, talk about and teach this God who is so much more loving and expansive in his willingness to provide salvation than maybe we have given him credit for? Um... If we can, it might just change. Um, If not what we do, then the way we feel about what we do, uh, the moments of peace and joy that we experience, and what our children feel, think, and do as we teach and work with them. Thank you so much for studying with us this week. Thanks for your listening to the podcast. I know it's not as good when Chris is not here, but hopefully this helps in some way. Enjoy your own study of section 76 this week, and we'll see you next episode.